Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for ministering to us already in so many ways through the just the gifts and the ability and the spirit of, uh, of our worship team, Lord. Thank you. Lord, as we prepare to conclude a, a study on Esther, that you continue to teach us and inspire us and direct us by your word, by your spirit, that we would go forth from here more encouraged, um, more aware, more in love with you, more committed to you and to your agenda. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Today we're going to wrap up the book of Esther. We've been um, going through this book. This has been a fun book. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, as we've mentioned several times, it is unique in that it's, it's, it's all story from start to finish, and it's one of two books in Scripture that never mentions God. And so, one, why is there a book in the Bible that never mentions God? But then, two, what kind of application do we try to bring to our life from a story that, that never mentions God? But one, and, and you can go through this kind of with a number of different lenses, um, but the one that we've really been going through, though, is, is the way that we see God working and the way that we see God moving and the way that we see God intervening, even though like he's not mentioned, and even though really in the midst of it, the people are not aware of it. Because that is something that we can relate to where there are seasons of life where we say, where are you, God? And it's not until later on where we're able to look back and go, oh, you were just, you were in the thick of it all through that um, with me. And um, so that is, that is definitely something we can relate to. Next week, um, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I, I think we're going to start a series on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so we'll, uh, we'll kind of, next week we'll kind of have a bit of an overview and we'll get into to that series looking at, at those books. The pattern has been to do Old Testament, New Testament, and just kind of bounce back and forth between uh, a book of, um, in, in each. Um, I nerded out a little bit on my Excel sheet uh, this last week and we've only covered, in eight years, we've only covered 10% of the Old Testament and I think it's uh, 28% of the New Testament. So we have a lot of work to do, um, but it is going to take me 50 years to finish the Bible before we can start again. So that was kind of the depressing part. It was like, oh, that's, that's a lot of work. So um, we, I don't know, maybe we'll start to recycle some stuff earlier than that. So uh, that's where we're at. So today I'm in Esther. We're going to uh, be in Esther uh, 7 and, and finish out the book and uh, just kind of move in pretty quickly through this, this last part. Just kind of as a reminder, or, or if you weren't with us last week, um, uh, you know, leading up into this, um, uh, really it talked about Haman, and Haman, had, Haman is, is really kind of the, the enemy of, of the Jews in this, in this plot line, and he's really had the worst possible day ever. Um, we, we were talking about this last week, but Haman, he, he, like he went to a banquet with, the, with um, Esther, the queen, and then the king. And so it's just the three of them, and, and so he thought that he was pretty hot stuff because it was just the three of them at this banquet. He goes home, and uh, he's pretty, pretty impressed with himself, but he's still 
um, complaining about Mordecai, this Jew who refuses to bow down to him. And so he's long ago, a couple months ago instigated this plan to have all the Jews killed throughout the entire nation. We don't know how many that is. One commentary guessed up maybe up to 15 million. I don't know. We're all just guessing, but it, it's a lot. And um, so his friends say, well, you should just ask for permission from the king to have Mordecai killed. And Haman thought this was a great idea. He built these gallows in his backyard that were 50 feet tall. We don't know if it was gallows in the sense of, like, hang from a rope or gallows in the sense of just, like, a big spike that they impale you on um, because that was more the, the Persian tradition back then. So he shows up at the palace pretty early in the morning. He's one of the first people there. And the king has had a, a dream, and, or actually not a dream. He w- wasn't able to sleep, and he's reminded that, that Mordecai saved his life. So Haman's the first to arrive at the palace, and the king asks Haman, what should be done for someone that the king wishes to honor? And Haman, in his arrogance, assumes that the king is talking about him. So he lays out this grand plan where basically he gets to be, he gets to pretend to be king for a day. And then the king says, that's a great idea. I want you to go do that for Mordecai, right? So there's just this epic, epic like, plot reversal that takes place. So, I mean, he goes from killing, like, he, I don't even know if he's had breakfast, right? But he goes from killing Mordecai to having honoring him in just a couple minutes. He goes home. He's crying to his wife and his friends. Um, and then the servants arrive and say, you're needed at the second party. And so they whisk him off to the second party. And then that's where our story picks up in, in Esther uh, 7. And uh, Esther had, had told the king she has a request, but she hasn't laid it out yet. And um, so she said, come back to the second party. And they all do. So Esther, uh, beginning of 7. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again asked Esther, and I never noticed this before, but there's a, uh, it, both wish and request are named. But, so the king says this, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Which was just a nice way of saying, I'm feeling generous, ask big. But he's not actually going to give half the kingdom. It's just the same. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So for starters, Esther begins this whole thing by, by making it personal. Um, she has kept it a secret that she is a Jew. Um, she has kept it a secret kind of that, that she is cousins to and was raised by Mordecai. No one in the palace um, knows that. So this is a bit of a surprise to everyone that, that, this is, that this is coming out. They were all unaware that this would affect Esther. Um, and I think she does a smart thing. She, she begins by making it personal because presumably the king loves Esther and doesn't want anything bad to happen to her. And then she also expands it to include my people. And at this point, she doesn't really say who that is. She just says my people. And everyone, kind of like later on, everyone's a little bit confused. Kind of like, what are you talking about? Like what? Apparently they just forgot that two months ago, you know, they wrote a decree saying all the Jews could be killed. And then they had a drinking party afterwards. The next part of what she says, it's a little bit confusing. It's just 
worded differently than we would word it, but Esther basically says, you know, if, if me and my people had only been sold into slavery, I would have, like, I would not have bothered to bring that up. Like, that's too small of a thing for the king to worry about. You know, I would not have mentioned it. just would have gone along with it. But, but since we're all slotted to be killed and, and annihilated, I, I thought maybe I should bring this up. Verse 5, chapter 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Right? And there's just three of them in the room, other than like guards and servants. Right? Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath, so he's mad, from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So the king is mad, right? Really mad, really, really mad. Um, He goes for a walk to whatever, calm down, think things through. Not sure. Um, he's also a bit confused, right? He hasn't really pieced together kind of everything that's happened. Like, he's just, he, he's not sure what exactly has, has happened. Um, and again, I want to commend Esther on her bravery. I mean, just the fact that she invited Haman to these parties. I mean, she could have left him out and, you know, just petitioned the, the king solo. And so I'm just, I am in awe of what she does and, and how she does it. And just her bravery in, that, in this just boggles my mind. Somewhere in this conversation, the king realizes a couple things. He realizes, one, that his queen, that that Esther is a Jew. He didn't know that before. And at some point, he presumably remembers that there was this edict to have all the Jews killed. Okay? So he gets mad. He goes for a walk. Not a bad idea. Now, here's here's the other thing on this. And um, this is... I, I, I... I'm speculating maybe just a bit, but, but bear with me here on, on this one. If this were me, alrighty, I would be very mad at Haman, but I would also be very mad and, and in a certain way also very embarrassed, at, but really mad at myself. Okay? Um, to be tricked uh, by Haman, to, to be made to look like a fool uh, for not knowing what was going on, uh, for entrusting the signet ring, which is basically authority and a power, to someone else, and then not demanding more answers on the front end, right? Sometimes we're mad at a person, but then sometimes we're just, we're mad at ourselves for letting it happen, right? Like, I told you not to, w- whatever, you know, don't do that thing, don't play with matches, you know, don't stick the knife in the toaster, like, whatever it is. Like, I told you not to do that, you did that, you got hurt, someone got hurt, and so I'm mad at you, but I'm also really mad at myself for, for letting this happen, okay? Now layer that on with a sovereign monarch where the king can do anything, and really the king is not supposed to ever make mistakes, and to a certain extent nothing happens that the king does not authorize, and, and so you can easily make the case that, that the king is also to blame, and so there's just a lot of layers in this, um, and as much as the king hated Haman in the moment, it's also possible that, that he just hated himself. Because, I mean, the other thing, too, just as we've seen, the king, I think we can conclude, really has a pretty large and frail ego. 
And insecure men can make really bad, rash decisions, right? And so that's very dangerous when you have all of this with one man kind of in in one moment. King goes for a walk, presumably to cool down. That's good. Meanwhile, poor Esther is stuck in the room with Haman, who's been talking nonstop, begging for his life. I would have found that a bit nauseating and annoying, but she's left in the room with this guy. Um, And then towards the end, he falls on her her couch um, to beg for his life just when the king walks in. And that's, I mean, that's all the king needs. I mean, he's just, it's right there. He found his scapegoat. It's, it's a done deal. A servant um, speaks up and says, um, you know, I don't know if you know this, but he built some gallows in his backyard that are 50 feet tall for Mordecai. And, uh, and so the king commands that Haman be, be hung on those gallows. And so within a few hours, Haman is dead. Now, I would also remind you that at breakfast... Haman was still in a favored position with the king, right? So a lot happened in less than a day. Haman is dead. He's gone. He's out of the picture. With Haman gone, the instigator was gone, but the damage of his life and the damage of his actions remained. There are times, there are seasons where you have a grumpy person, mean person, toxic person in your life, whether that's personally or work or extended family or church or whatever, and maybe after a while they leave, but the effects of that person remain. And you're left dealing with those for a long time. End of chapter 7, getting into chapter 8. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, that that they were related, that that he had raised her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Um, It's a bit unclear how much time passes until the next paragraph. Uh, I mean, obviously, we we have some details here on the estate transfer that that took place. I mean, Haman was very, very wealthy. And again, within a day, the king took all of that from Haman and from his family, handed it over to Esther. Esther put Mordecai in charge of it. Mordecai goes from whatever job he had to now second in the kingdom. He pretty much took Haman's job. So a a lot happens. Um, Verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. And there's just kind of a few small things in here. I think perhaps some time has passed, uh, but we're not really sure. Uh, Esther fell at his feet, the king's feet, and wept and pleaded to him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out his golden scepter to Esther, um, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if The thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing to his eyes. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Uh, Verse 7. King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, Behold, I have given you the house of Haman. They've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to kill you. But 
Um, almost as if to say, if, okay, if that's not enough, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the previous edict was that pretty much whoever wanted to could kill a Jew on the 13th day of the 12th month. They had a different calendar system, but for us it's just an easy way to remember it. That's end of the year, uh, December 13, right? There's no getting rid of that. That's gone out. You cannot undo that. That's been stated. It's gone out to all 127 provinces, whatever. Done deal. You cannot undo that. King Ahasuerus doesn't really have a plan. Uh, he just knows that it can't be changed, so he just gives the ring to, to Haman and Esther. And is like, well, you figure out something, but then you can give it my, my stamp of approval. So here's the plan that they come up with. Their plan is that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. Right? That's the plan. And then they use almost exact wording on that second edict, uh, or the second command. So the first one, chapter 3, verse 13, um, the edict goes out with instructions to destroy, kill, annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Okay? That was the first one that, that Haman sent out. Here's what Mordecai and Esther send out. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather, to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods um, on one day throughout the whole provinces, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Okay. Throughout the, the next chapter, we see a, a couple things unfold. The Jews did gather together. They did defend themselves. Um, they did not attack women and children, only the men. Um, and they did not plunder the goods. They, they let that be. And that throughout the entire kingdom, they killed an estimated 75,000 men. And again, you know, we've got a, a few million Jews uh, in the area. Um, 9 verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75 of those who hated them, but they laid... No hands on the plunder. For me, when I read this, it is unclear to me if, kind of on one extreme, they just made a list of everyone that they didn't like and hunted those people down, right? You know, so-and-so called me a bad name, like in junior high, so I say we go after him. You know, if it was that vert, kind of on the edge, or if they, you know, created some kind of fortified position and then anyone who attacked them, they, they killed them, okay? In my mind, that's two pretty drastically different approaches to the situation. And I don't, when I read through this and when I study this, I'm not really sure um, kind of what went down. It's interesting the things that, that you remember or that stick in your mind. I don't know why I remember this. I remember one of my Bible professors at Tabor College um, having a really hard time with this part of the story. Um, he was a devoutly pacifist, and, and he felt that at this point in the story, the Jewish people um, deviated from the will of God and that what they did was wrong. So there's no, there's no application. We just see in this storyline, you know, that at this point, they, they did the, the wrong thing. Okay? Um, ironically, Israel is in the news again. Uh, some of you have, have probably noticed that. There is another group of people that, that say that the Jews should not be allowed to live. A New York Times article from two days ago 
A number of rockets fired into the most recent spate of hostilities is unprecedented. Um, Majority of the rockets appear to be aimed at population centers, so not military places, population centers across southern and central Israel. Um, Longer-range rockets were launched at Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Um, Hamas has not only managed to replenish its arsenal, but has has proved its capabilities. One estimate said that they may have up to 30,000 rockets. Um, Using numbers from the Israel Defense Force, uh, they studied it. They cited 470 rockets fired from Gaza during the first 24 hours. So in 24 hours, 470 rockets were launched. Now what's interesting then is that they say, whoa, yeah, and this is so much higher, and then they compare numbers back to like 2012 when it was only 300 rockets or only 200 rockets. Uh, One study said that in 2018 and 2019, a total of 1,500 rockets were fired into to Israel. There's actually an app that you could get. I, I, I downloaded it, but I didn't set it up correctly. But it's an alarm system, and it, it, it's from the Israeli government. And then based on where you're at, it will send you an alarm if there's a rocket headed your way. Is, and, um, I mean, people push back and say, well, they're crude rockets. I mean, they're made from you know, like plumbing parts and old bombs and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, they, they don't have a guidance system. They just kind of launch them wherever. Um, Israel has a really good defense system called the Iron Dome. So basically just very good radar, picks up on the rocket, figures out its speed, its trajectory, where it's going to be, and then launches another rocket to shoot it out of the sky. So the physics and the technology on that are just mind-boggling. So they've, they've got this Iron Dome system that, that's shooting down all these other rockets out of the air. And then, but then there's a lot of pressure on Israel to just say, like, you know, Israel, like, come on, you just need to chill out and and calm down, right? Um, In the story of Esther, there's a concentrated effort to eradicate all Jews. And today you find in parts of the world a similar uh, sediment. And so, really how we respond to this part of Esther can inform how even we respond and how we react to today. Because you really do need a response to 470 rockets within 24 hours. Like, as a Christian, like, like what's our stance on that? Like, does Israel need to chill out? Or does Israel need, do they have a right to defend themselves? Or something in the middle, like where do we land on that? And what's interesting is that for us as a denomination, as a people group, this gets even kind of more complicated um, because you cannot talk about this really without talking about pacifism as well too as part of this. Now, many of you know more about this than than I do. For some of you that that are newer to this, just kind of a, a rough history, that you have a people group called the Mennonites, but you also have a denomination called the Mennonites, and you also have a denomination called the Mennonite Brethren, and we are the denomination, the Mennonite Brethren, and we also happen to have, within our North American denomination, a lot of the people group who are Mennonites, right? Other parts of the world, not so much, but in in North America, a lot of our Mennonite Brethren denomination is populated by, by this people group. And within both the people group and the denomination, there is a heritage of valuing peace, of valuing peacemaking, um, and there's kind of a whole spectrum on it on 
pacifism. Uh, everything from like, meh, whatever, to, well, you should not serve in military, but everything else is okay, all the way to the kind of the other side, which, is, which would be, you should not serve in any government position at all, because government is just kind of this necessary evil until Jesus comes back. So there's kind of this whole spectrum of that, and we've got people kind of everywhere within that. And I know at least for a little while we had people both who had served in military and people who had both served as conscientious objector. So, you know, you can say, oh, what an interesting part of the story that in Esther they defended themselves. But if, when you really get into it, like, there's a lot for us as a people group to unpack, also recognizing that there's a lot of history, theology, and emotion tied with this, and how do we respond to this today, and what is our stance on 470 rockets within 24 hours, right? So, it's just a big thing that we can talk about for like the next six Sundays, right? Um, here, so I'm just, rather than trying to unpack where the denomination stands, rather, or all these other things, I'm just going to briefly give you where I am at today with the disclaimer that I often give that this might be different tomorrow, because tomorrow I'm going to learn something else, and we're always changing and learning and growing. Here's where I'm at today, okay? Um, hold on for a second. Um, I, I believe that from Scripture, there's a couple things. One, the church has not replaced Israel. That there's still a, a, a calling and, and a place that, that God has for the, the nation of Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. That may sound flippant, but that's actually a pretty large piece of theology. Um, God still has some kind of purpose and plan for Israel, um, but also recognizing that um, Romans tells us, and even we see today, like most Jews reject Jesus, we would not call them Christians, and recognizing that they too may be making bad decisions just like, like anyone else. From history, we see that there is this kind of weird disproportionate hate or aggression towards Jews that seems very unbalanced. Um, Dr. J. Vernon McGee wrote this. The Jew has attended the funeral of every one of the nations that tried to exterminate him. Found that pretty fascinating. The Jew has attended the funeral of every one of the nations that tried to exterminate him. And it is pretty miraculous when you think that this is a people group that did not have a homeland for about 2,000 years, and yet they were able to keep not only their national identity, but also their culture and their language until they became a nation again in 1948. Um, so here's where I'm at. Because Israel still has a place in God's agenda, I think the world will always have a unique kind of hatred um, or disdain for Israel. Um, Israel is the most democratic nation in the Middle East. Most Israelites do not worship Jesus. We, we would not call them Christians. Um, and in fact, Romans even says hostile towards the gospel. I believe that how we treat Israel matters. I personally, as of today, would say that they do have a right to defend themselves. But I also believe that this conflict is going to exist in some form until Jesus returns. Right? Not to say we can't strive for peace, but this is just going to be a tension that's going to be there until Jesus comes back especially depending on, on how you interpret some of the, the prophecies um, around end times and that kind of thing. And with that, we're going to jump right into the next application um, on, on what we can do with this part, on this part of Esther. King Ahasuerus 
went from a decree to kill all Jews to allowing all Jews to defend him, themselves really within 24 hours. Pretty big flip, pretty, pretty drastic turnaround. And I would say all of it because of God's intervention. Took a couple things that he had to put in place, but all of it was God's intervention. So here would be, I think, the application on that. God can change hearts, and God can change the heart of your enemies. However you want to define that. A little bit different for them than for us. But an encouragement to not give up. An encouragement to, to not lose heart. Because the person who is against you, the person who is against God... God has shown that he can literally turn that person around in less than 24 hours. May, you know, Esther had to do some crazy things to put her life on the line. But a complete 180 degree turnaround is possible by God and only with God. It can happen, but it's a God intervention scenario. And you're going to need to be, I mean, God's going to be directing this one. The story ends with Mordecai um, being promoted, right? Um, prior to this, Mordecai, we see him serving at the city gate. City gate was often a place of authority or business or, or government conduct. Um, Mordecai and Haman knew each other. Uh, Mordecai's presence uh, at the city gate, it, it hints that Mordecai already had some kind of government ruling, authoritative job, whatever that is, not really sure. Uh, verse 15 tells us that the people rejoiced at Mordecai's promotion. Chapter 8, verse 15. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Many of the people of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Later on, chapter 10, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and coastlands and all acts of his power and might. Um, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews, popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. By this account, Mordecai is, he's a good man, he's a good leader, um, the people benefited from his leadership, he's promoted to a, a position of power and authority, but again, I think that's something that we need to give God credit for. Um, the thing that really catapulted Mordecai into fame Mordecai had nothing to do with, right? It was the sleepless night of the king, where then he decides to, to reward him later on. Later on, Esther pulls Mordecai into the room, explains their, their relationship. Again, Mordecai didn't have anything to do with this. And so there's not really a sense of Mordecai working to promote himself. I mean, he worked hard. He did a good job. He, he did his, his position well. But really, that promotion and that elevation came through God's intervention. One last thing in the book of Esther. To this day, Jews will still um, celebrate the Feast of Purim. And I may be pronouncing that wrong. P-U-R-I-M. Purim. Purim. Um, that feast that they celebrate today is based on 
the book of Esther. Purim is a Hebrew word, and it means lots. Um, because as you remember, at the beginning of the story, they threw lots. It's kind of like throwing dice. They threw dice to determine, hey, when should we kill the Jews? And it came up with, you know, the 12th and 13th day and whatnot. And so, um, but then they were eventually saved. And so they continue to celebrate this book today. I would offer to you that God loves a good party. I think we sometimes forget that. But in the Old Testament, God instigated several feasts. Many of them included food. Some of them were several days long. When you read about heaven, it reads like a really good party that lasts for a really long time. And people are eating, and they're celebrating, and everyone's really thrilled to be there, right? Celebrate what God has done. Celebrate publicly what God has done. It is good to have feasts and to remember and to give God credit and kind of raise a ruckus about it and have a good time and invite others into that celebration. God likes a good party. Not the bad parties, the good parties. You should know the difference, right? God likes a good party. It's pretty unlikely that you or I are going to have some part of our storyline that involves going from orphan to, like, king or queen of the most powerful nation on the earth only to risk our lives to save our people uh, with a temperamental and egotistical king, right? That part we really can't relate to. But I do believe that we can relate to a storyline where we go through seasons of life and we wonder, where is God in all of this? right? Like, is he still around? Does he still love me? Is he still involved in my life? Did he forget me? Um, Why does it feel like I've not heard from him in a while? Why does it feel like I've been left on my own? Why in this last season of life does it feel like there is no mention of God? And then perhaps some time passes. Perhaps you speak to a good friend who gives you the gift of honesty. Um, Maybe the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Maybe you read up on some scripture, and then you look back and you see God's fingerprints all over it. All over it. Right? And you see miracles upon miracles, and like you didn't even know that it was a miracle at the time, but now you look back and you say, yep, that that was a miracle. And you begin to recognize it for for what it was. That is a storyline that all of us can relate to. And just this awareness that God does love you, that he is involved in your life, and not like in a vague, like, check in on you once a week, but like involved in the meticulous details of your life. That is a storyline that all of us can relate to. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the remarkable story of Esther. God, we thank you for just the the inspiration of of her uh, wisdom and and courage and boldness. But Lord, more than that, we thank you for the evidence of your working even when we don't recognize it at the time. Lord, again, we surrender our lives to you, uh, fresh and anew every day, God. And we love you, we worship you, we are so thankful for who you are and that we can have restored relationship with you. Lord, we pray for eyes to see 
um, all the ways that you are involved in our life and have been involved in our life, and that we would help others recognize the involvement of God in their life, sometimes through the gift of honesty. God, thank you for another day to be reminded of all of this. We are very grateful. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.